passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. And for the rest of us, we'll be in uh, 1 Samuel again this morning, 1 Samuel chapter 27 and the first couple verses of, of chapter 28. And as, as, we, uh, as we turn our attention back to 1 Samuel this morning, I, I have to confess um, this, this text left me scratching my head this past week as I was, as I was studying it. And it wasn't because I, I thought it was a particularly complicated text um, as much as it was I just couldn't believe what we're seeing from David in this passage here in 1 Samuel chapter 27. 1 Samuel 27, we'll soon see, is about David running to the Philistines in order to escape Saul. And uh, here's why I find this to be, be so confusing. It's because we've seen this from David before. We've seen David, when he is being pursued by Saul, uh, run to, to the people of Philistia in order to save himself. We saw this back in, in 1 Samuel chapter 21. He goes to Israel's sworn enemy in order to save his own skin, and it has almost disastrous consequences. We saw that several weeks ago in chapter 21. Back a couple weeks ago in chapter 25, we saw David is on the verge of disaster. He's about to, to commit mass murder against this man named Nabal and his household, and yet God intervenes at the last moment, sending Abigail in order to remind David not to trust in himself, not to rely on himself to make things right, but instead to trust in God. And I confess, I'm left scratching my head because in this passage, I would have thought that David would have learned his lesson. And of course, maybe that's exactly why we need this passage, isn't it? Because when we see David in this moment, David, what on earth are you doing here? Haven't you learned? That's exactly why we need to hear this passage because David's exactly like us. Life is not this straight line of progress in the faith. It would be wonderful if we learned a lesson from God the first time, or even the second time, or the third time. Instead, we oftentimes need to be reminded time and time and time and time again of the gospel. To be reminded over and over to not trust in ourselves but to trust in the Lord instead. That's not the reality of our lives, this, this idea that, that, okay, I'll never do that again the first time that we, we mess up. That's what makes this text such an important one. It's because oftentimes, after these mountaintop moments of, of obedience and faith and following Jesus, trusting in God, we can, in the next moment, find ourselves in this place. We're in the throes of unbelief, not trusting in God. If you're anything like me, you can look at just the last 30 days, and in those days, you can see times where you were obedient, where you were following God, and then the next moment you find yourselves, where is God? Why should I trust God in this moment? No, we need this text. We need this text because it is a reminder to us when we think, as we read it, David, what on, you, are, what on earth are you doing? We need to be asking, Jordan, what on earth are you doing? 
It reminds us of our need for the gospel. It reminds us of our need for grace when we are tempted to follow in the footsteps of David here in this passage. And that's the message of this text. Text. I hope it sinks deep into our hearts this morning. It's really the, uh, the, the title of this sermon. It's the heart, the, the one thing I want you to take away. It's simply this, to trust in the Lord and not in yourself. That's what this text is about. It's calling you to trust in God, not to trust in yourself. This is a simple message, but it is a crucial message. It's one that we have to hear time and time and time again. To trust in God, trust in the Lord, not in ourselves. And the way this text communicates this, relatively straightforward. 1 Samuel 27, first two verses of chapter 28 can break, be broken apart into two parts. As we see David, he's swept up in this moment of unbelief. We see first David retreats, and then after that we see the life of David the mercenary. And that will be our focus this morning. Uh, because this is a relatively short text, we're going to do something that we don't normally do. We're going to read the entire text together here at the beginning. Um, would you stand out of reverence for God's Word? And I'm actually going to read it. You can just follow along. You don't have to read aloud, um, but we're going to read this text um, all um, here at the beginning. It says this, then, God, then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than, I, than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. So David arose and went over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, the king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, and his, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel, and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given to me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as for sure to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. When Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the Jeremahites. Wow, I didn't practice that one. Or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell, us, tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David, thinking, he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, 
I will make you my bodyguard for life. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word, and we ask that you would help us to not take the gift of your word for granted. We ask that you would speak to your church this morning, that you would transform us, that you would shape us increasingly into the image of your Son. We ask these things in Jesus' name, that we might live for his glory. Amen. You may be seated. I mentioned this text breaks into two parts, the retreat and the mercenary, David and his life as a mercenary. First, we see his retreat from the land of Israel. Instead of living in Israel, he instead runs to Israel's bitterest enemies, Israel's neighbors, the Philistines. And one of the things that we've seen over and over in the book of 1 Samuel when it comes to the Philistines is the Philistines are like a thermometer showing the spiritual state of the people of Israel. So when Israel is not following the Lord, when they're running from God, we see that the Philistines actually are powerful. They oppress the people of Israel. They're in charge. And yet when the people of Israel are are trusting in God, they're following him obediently, they subdue the Philistines, and the Philistines are nowhere to be found. So it should be alarming to us when we open this text that we see David, the Lord's chosen king, running to the land of the Philistines for help. And this is even more alarming when we consider the previous chapter. Chapter 27, of course, comes right after chapter 26. In chapter 26, David is talking with Saul, and he tells Saul that if he continues to pursue David, then David will be forced to leave the land of Israel, and he says, even to go and worship other gods. In ancient times, especially in the ancient Near East, the idea of worship was located in a specific place. David isn't saying that God isn't the God of the entire earth. He's saying that true worship, the promises of God, are centered on a specific location. And so for David to leave the land would be for Saul and his men to force him to worship other gods, and for David to voluntarily do that would be to cut himself off from true worship of God. For David, as we get into chapter 27, it seems like he's run out of tolerance for Saul's actions, and he's like, I don't have anywhere else to turn, and so I'm going to go to the land of the Philistines. He's, just put this in context for a moment. He has been on the run from Saul for years. And, and he's tired. And he has to consider the safety of his followers, the safety of his own family, the safety of his followers' families. He has wives to consider, children to consider, and so he says, there's nowhere else to turn. We're going to leave Israel and go to the land of the Philistines. We're actually given a little bit of insight into David's thought process in verse 1. Notice what it says in verse 1 again. Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. Now, I want to be really clear, because in one sense, I'm very sympathetic to David in this moment. 
One of the greatest challenges us, facing us when we are, find ourselves in the midst of adversity isn't when we know there's an end to adversity, when we know there's an end to the suffering, but when it's indefinite, when we have no idea when it is going to come to an end. It wears on us so much more when it seems like it will never end. And David finds himself in this place where he's heard the promises of God. He has the promises that one day he will be the king. And yet for years, he has waited for God to deliver on those promises, and it never seems like the end is in sight. And so he despairs in this moment, and he tells himself in his heart, there's no point anymore. Let's find refuge in the land of the Philistines. He's finding himself in the unknown in the midst of the Judean wilderness, and it's not a place where he can live for long, from cave to cave to cave. And he gets to this place where he thinks that the best option available is to go to the Philistines. And that's the problem. In David's mind, this is the best option available. And this text, no matter how sympathetic it may be to David... Notice that it doesn't mention God at all in this chapter. There is no mention of God in chapter 27 or the beginning of chapter 28, and and I think that's intentional because it's showing us David's thought process here in this moment. David thinks the best option available to him is to run to Gath, seek refuge there, There's only one problem, and that is that David is not seeking God's will. He's not asking God what he should do. There's no consideration of what God would have him do. There's no consideration of God at all in this chapter. This is actually a persistent pattern that we see in David's life. We see it in our own lives as well, if we're willing to look. Every single time in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, that David falls into sin, do you know what is absent? Thinking about God, considering God, asking God for direction, consulting God's revealed word to him. The story of David in 1 and 2 Samuel is remarkably consistent in this. It makes it abundantly clear that when David is not pursuing God, he falls into doubt. His faith withers on the vine. Let me give you three examples from David's life besides here in this chapter. First one, I mentioned chapter 21. In 1 Samuel chapter 21, David runs to the land of the Philistines for refuge. In that chapter, David lies to the priests and then he tries to hide out in the city of Gath. And you read chapter 21, you'll notice that God is nowhere to be found. There's no mention of God there's no mention of God's word. Same thing in chapter 25, a second example. Chapter 25, David is offended by the actions of this rich man named Nabal, and he's about to go and slaughter Nabal and all of the men in his household, and it isn't until God sends Abigail that David is is not considering at all what God would have him do. It's only once Abigail arrives and says, hold up, David, what about God in this moment? that David begins to think and consider God's perspective on his life. A third example, one we haven't looked at, 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11 tells the story of David and Bathsheba, something that many of us are likely familiar with. 
David sees the wife of one of his generals taking a bath, and he's so overcome with lust that he sleeps with her. And then to cover up the entire thing, he has his general killed, and he marries her to try to cover up his own sin. And if you look at 2 Samuel chapter 11, you'll notice that God is completely absent. There's no mention of God in 2 Samuel chapter 11 until you get to the very last verse where it says this, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. We see this pattern in David's life when he is overwhelmed. It doesn't matter if he is overwhelmed and overcome with his circumstances in chapter 21 and here in chapter 27. It doesn't matter if he is overcome with anger, as in chapter 25. It doesn't matter if he is overcome with lust in 2 Samuel chapter 11. In each of those situations, the eyes of his heart are somewhere other than God and somewhere other than God's word, and it leads to disastrous consequences for David. And that's what we see here in chapter 27, although maybe not at first. Because as we look at chapter 27, it actually looks like David's plan works. Verse 4 makes that very clear. David, in this moment, he goes to Gath, he finds refuge, political asylum there, and Saul relents. Saul stops pursuing him. It says this in chapter 27, verse 4. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. Saul had no interest in pursuing David to the land of the Philistines. Maybe Saul is actually thinking, hey, you know what? This is better than killing David. There's no better way for David's uh, opinion, the, the opinion of the people to be turned against David than for people to discover that he is now fighting in the Philistine army. He's going to ruin his reputation. And so Saul leaves him alone. And as for David... He's now escaped Saul, but he also doesn't like living in the royal city. He doesn't like living in, Zikla, or in Gath where, uh, where Achish himself lives. And so he says, hey, can you give me a place to live? And Achish gives him the town of Ziklag, which is on the border of the Philistines and the, Ju- uh, the, the people of Judea. But there's something significant about this offer. Because David goes from a place of seeking political asylum to now becoming a vassal of the Philistine king. David is no longer just seeking protection from this man. He is now in this place where he has responsibilities to the Philistine king. He's going to be safer in the land of Ziklag, and yet he now has to pay tribute to the king of the Philistines. And this is what takes place for the next 16 months of David's life. On the surface, it looks like David has everything he could ever want. He has safety. He has a place for his men and their families to live in peace. We'll soon see he accumulates a great deal of wealth in this time. Everything seems to be going well for David. Until we look at the second part of this passage. Second part of the passage reveals the rot that is at the heart of David's peace and safety and success. 
Second part of this passage focuses on the life of David the mercenary. Because he was a vassal of the Philistine king, he was expected to regularly pay tribute to Achish. And so David and his men actually embrace this mercenary lifestyle. They begin to hunt and loot and pillage various tribes that are surrounding the northern Sinai desert in this moment. That's what verse 8 makes very clear to us. Notice verse 8 again. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites, for these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as sure to the land of Egypt. Now, positively, David has found a way where he can continue to do what he needs to do for the Philistine king, provide money, provide goods, provide these types of things that he is owed, while also at the same time protecting the people of Israel. He's actually the defender of the Israelites here in this moment. I've actually heard some pastors go as far as saying that in this moment, David's actions are completely good. That David here is finishing the conquest of the people of Israel against these tribes, and I don't buy it one bit. Verse 9 tells us David's real motives. It says this, And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. Do you see what that verse is telling us? This verse says that over the course of of 16 months, David slaughters desert tribes. He leaves no one alive. All the while, he is accumulating a great deal of wealth by taking their livestock, their clothing, all of their material goods. And sometimes he'd bring that back to Achish and he'd pay him off and give him the tribute that he was due in this relationship. And yet also, we'll see in chapter 29, chapter 30, that David began to accumulate a lot of this for himself as well. Now, Achish doesn't realize who David is attacking. Achish actually thinks that David is attacking the people of Israel. That's what verse 10 tells us. In verse 10, David says, hey, you know what? I'm, I'm actually going and I'm attacking the, the, the Israelites here. I'm attacking Israel's neighbors, their allies. It's a straight-up lie from David. Now, David might indeed protect the people of Israel in this moment, but it's also true that he is so ruthless, so merciless, that he's not doing this out of any sort of religious duty, but here he's doing it to, to protect his lie. He's keeping himself safe in this moment. Take a look at verse 11 again. David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. I would argue that this time in David's life, the 16 months living as a vassal, as a mercenary in the employ of the Philistines, is the lowest moments of David's life. Desperation has driven David from the land of Israel. 
David in this moment is not trusting in God as he's done so many other times. Instead, he's trusting in a political arrangement with Israel's enemy. And as a part of the arrangement with Israel's enemy, he's expected to provide wealth, provide these types of goods for this man. And so David goes and kills people so that he can meet his quota as a mercenary. He lies to Akish about what he's doing. And then he's even more brutal in order to cover his tracks and to secure his position with Akish here. And it looks like it works. You get to the end of chapter 27, verse 12. Akish is completely fooled. It looks like David is getting away with absolutely everything. Akish actually thinks, hey, you know what? He's made, him such a, made himself such a, a stench in the, in the eyes of his own people. He's, he's going to be forced to be with me now forever. Before this moment, the people of Israel would sing praises about David for conquering and, and, and delivering his people by, by vanquishing thousands, tens of thousands of Israel's enemies. And now he is attacking Israel, according to Akish. See, David seems to have done quite well for himself in this moment. He has safety, he has peace, he has stability, he has wealth. And because he is so thorough in killing people, no one knows. And he thinks he gets away with it. But then, after 16 months, David's sin finally finds him out. Notice verse 1. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. At long last, Akish asks David to make good on his promise. The Philistines are gathering for a decisive blow against the people of Israel. Generations earlier, the Philistines controlled basically the entire land of Israel, and all of the Israelites were oppressed by the Philistines. They lost that power, and now they're coming back for it. And Akish says, as my vassal, as a mercenary working for me under my protection, you are obligated to go and fight the people of Israel. You are obligated to go and kill your own people. And we actually aren't told David's thoughts in this moment. His response is very ambiguous. It doesn't tell us what he's thinking. And the text leaves us with a cliffhanger here. Not just this week in the way we broke up the passage. After this, the text actually jumps to this story about Saul in chapter 28, the rest of chapter 28. It's not until chapter 29 and 30 that we see what happens with David. In this moment, we are left wondering, David, this man who slew Goliath, the, the champion of the Philistines, is he going to become the new champion of the Philistines, attacking and oppressing the people of Israel? And the text leaves us with this cliffhanger until we get to chapter 29 in a couple of weeks. 
And what I want us to consider as we look at this text is what exactly can we learn? How does this text tell us that we should trust in the Lord and not ourselves? I think there are four lessons from this text. The first one is found back in verse 1. Verse 1 says this, Then David said in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Don't pass over the beginning of that text because it tells us where David's problems start. They all start with what David has consuming his heart and his thoughts. There's this internal conversation going on in David's life. There's an internal conversation going on in all of our lives as well. And, and, and we're given insight here at the beginning of this, of this chapter into what is happening in David's heart. And here we see in this moment... David is telling himself faithlessness. He's speaking this message of doubt to himself. I would even go as far as saying that this moment here, verse 1, is actually a sermon that David is preaching to himself. And it shows us the importance of what we're telling ourselves, what we're dwelling on as the people of God. There are a couple positive examples of this in the Bible. Psalm 42, written by, um, uh, or it was one of my favorite psalms. I love it because it's it's written about this time of anguish and hardship that the psalmist finds himself in. He's expressing grief over the sorrows of his life. And yet in the midst of those sorrows, he actually takes a moment to address his soul, to address himself, to, to preach to himself, to remind himself of the promises of God, the importance of trusting God rather than letting his circumstances rule his life. Psalm 42 says this, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Psalm 42 is this sermon that the psalmist is preaching to himself saying, don't be ruled by your circumstances, be ruled instead by a trust in God. That's actually the context of Psalm 103 as well. Psalm 103 is one of the most well-known psalms of David. The entire psalm is David reminding his soul to bless the Lord to trust in God, to to think about all the good that God has done for him. And as such, God is worthy of David's praise and trust. Notice how Psalm 103 starts. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Here we have this sermon that David is preaching to himself saying, remember all the good that God has done for you. And that should lead you, soul, to worship and to praise this God. But what about, Saul, or what about 1 Samuel 27? What is the, the sermon David is preaching to himself? 
Is he preaching about the promises of God? Is he reminding himself that even though he may not understand what God is doing, he may not understand God's ways, that God is worth trusting? Is he in this moment saying, you know what, God, I don't understand what you're doing, but that's good enough for me. God, I've seen you take care of me time and time and time again, and so I know that you are going to continue to do so. No, that's not the message of David's sermon. We look at verse 1 and we see the essence of David's sermon. What he's preaching to himself is that Saul is more powerful than God. That my circumstances are so bad that not even God can take care of them. And everything we see in this chapter can be traced back to what David is dwelling on in his thoughts and in his heart. And that's the first lesson for us in this passage from this text. The sermon you preach to your heart each day will determine the direction of your life. There is a sermon that you are preaching to yourself each and every day. And if it is not the gospel, if you are not reminding yourself of the gospel, it will determine the direction of your life and that direction will not be good. Martin Luther, hundreds of years ago, said that we have to preach the gospel to ourselves each and every day because we're so prone to forget it. And that's so true of David here in this moment, that he, instead of preaching the gospel to himself, preaches a a message of doubt, of the untrustworthiness of God. And he leaves Israel to find salvation elsewhere. What about you? What are you preaching to yourself each and every day? Are you turning your soul to the goodness of God? Are you strengthening your heart with the gospel? Are you turning your eyes to the gaze on the trustworthiness of God? Are you like David here in this passage? Instead of all those things, turning your attention to a disastrous message that God cannot be trusted You see, the sermon you preach to yourself each and every day will determine the direction of your life. A second lesson from this text, I mentioned earlier there's no mention of God here in this passage. Two other times in David's life, David's doubt was rebuffed by other believers speaking to him, reminding him of the promises of God. We saw that in 1 Samuel chapter 23. Jonathan comes to David, strengthens his hand in God by reminding him of what God has said, bringing him back to the word of God. 1 Samuel chapter 25, Abigail does the exact same thing, brings David back to the word of God. In both of those cases, David is shaken out of despair or out of his sin by people pointing him back to God's word, to what God has said. But here, there's no mention of that. No one points David back to what God has said, and in that vacuum, Doubt grows for David. That is the the message that each of us have to take to heart as well. Doubt grows in the absence of God's word. That's the second lesson we have to learn from this text, that your doubt will grow in the absence of God's word. When you're not seeking God, when you're not seeking him in his word, when you're not reminding yourself of the promises of God, doubt festers. 
And it is so easy to doubt God, to lose sight of how good and trustworthy He is if you are not spending time with Him. At the core of David's problems here is a heart that doesn't seek after God. That's made even clearer when we consider 1 Samuel chapter 27 in, in connection with chapter 28. Chapter 28 we'll look at next week. Uh, it's one of the unifying themes between these two chapters is silence. Chapter 28, Saul is met with silence from God because of his unrepentance and because of his sin. Chapter 27, we see God is silent because David doesn't seek his face. That David doesn't ask God to speak to him. And again, this is so true of us as well. One of the reasons God has given us his word is so that we might remember his character, so that we might remember how he acts for his people in the past and conclude, you know what, this God is worth trusting today. That's the heart of Psalm 77. Psalm 77 says this, will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in his anger shut up his compassion? The psalmist finds himself in this moment overcome by grief, overcome by doubt, and wonders, God, have you forgotten me? Have you forgotten your people? And yet, rather than running from God, he takes that moment and he draws his attention back to what God has done in the testimony of Scripture revealed to us. To the people of God. The next verses say this. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on all your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the people. This is why regularly reading the Bible is an essential part of the Christian life. It's not because we want you to be able to show off your Bible knowledge to other people. It's not because it earns any sort of favor in God's eyes. It's not even because it makes all of your prob problems in life disappear. It's because you are consistently, regularly reminding yourself that the God who was at work in ages past is the same God who is at work today, and he is worth trusting. And yet, if you ignore this gift, your doubt will drown you. Because as we see from David in this passage, doubt grows in the absence of God's word. Third lesson from this text, David's plan seems to work to perfection here. He's given asylum in, in, among the Philistines. Uh, Saul stops pursuing him. Everything seems to be going well for David until we get to the end of the chapter. And we see David's sin comes home to roost. And this text reminds us that unbelief always has disastrous consequences. It always has disastrous consequences. It will wreak havoc in your life. It will lead you into sin, just like David here in this chapter. David the butcher in this chapter. 
It will lead you into sin, and it will leave you there unless God intervenes. David is a horrific character in this chapter. Let's just be honest. It's horrifying what David does here. He lies, he slaughters to protect his own skin. It all starts with unbelief. It all starts with this man who thinks that his unbelief, he can get away with it, and yet it has disastrous consequences. Do you see why this is a message for you as well? That David is an example to the extreme, yes, of what happens to us when we slide into unbelief. It always has disastrous consequences. So trust in the Lord and not in yourself. One final lesson from this text. I mentioned we're left with this cliffhanger. Chapter 29 finally tells us what happens with David. David actually goes out. He marches with the the Philistines to go and fight the Israelites, and he's only spared from the battle because the other Philistines don't trust him. It's actually interesting. We're not given any mention of whether David was going to fight or not. And so David, in chapter 29, is discharged from Israel, or from the Philistine army. He returns back home to Ziklag. He comes home to Ziklag, and he is met with destruction. Ziklag has been destroyed by a raid. All of the women, all of the children have been enslaved, and all of David's men turn on him in that moment. They, they consider killing him out of their grief. And David is left all alone. And it's in that moment, the the lowest moments of David's life where he's all alone, what does David do? Chapter 30, verse 6. For David, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord. For the first time in 16 months, David runs to God. 16 months. It may have taken his entire life hitting rock bottom for it to happen. But he returns to the Lord. We're told that he strengthens himself in the Lord his God. This is the same word we saw in chapter 23 when Jonathan comes and strengthens David by reminding him of the word of God, reminding him of the promises of God. So David, in chapter 30, when his life has fallen apart, he returns to the Lord, reminding himself of this God and what this God has done. And immediately after David returns to God, he goes to the priest, Abiathar, and he asks God what he should do. And after almost a year and a half, do you know what God does? God answers. No waiting period, no cold shoulder. No resentment from God. What took you so long, David? No statement of God saying, well, we'll see if you're serious. 
and then I'll answer you. David cries out to God, and God answers him. And as I consider this lowest point in David's life, I'm just given such incredible reassurance that God never gives up on his people. He doesn't give up on David, and he won't give up on you. In the broader context of 1 Samuel, that's a message, a lesson from this text as well. There's no season of doubt that is too long or too great for God to overcome. You might have been running from God for 16 months, like David. It might be 16 years. It might be 16 days. It might be 60 years. However long you've been running from God, you might think, that there's no possible way that God would welcome me back after what I've done, but look at what he did with David. There's no sin too great, too long for God to overcome. With David, it makes no difference if you've been running from him for days, weeks, months, years, decades. He'll welcome you back. This is why this God is worthy of our trust. This is why we should trust in the Lord, not in ourselves. It's, yes, because of the disastrous consequences of trusting in ourselves, of, of unbelief, and yet, more than that, it's because this God is worthy of our trust. That He loves us period. And he's always waiting for us to leave behind unbelief and sin and doubt and return to him. That's the heart of the gospel. We celebrated the gospel with communion. That's the heart of the gospel. This God welcomes people like David, welcomes people like me in spite of all that I have done with all my faults, all my failures, all my shortcomings, all of my doubt, all of my unbelief because David's son, the true king, King Jesus, bore the punishment of unbelief for us on the cross so that we could be welcomed into the family of God. Chapter 27, the beginning of chapter 28, the message is so clear. Trust in the Lord, not in yourself. If you're trusting yourself right now, this text makes it very clear. Return to him. It doesn't matter if it's been 16 months. Return to this God. Trust in the Lord not in yourself. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. What an incredible gift it is. Thank you for the mercy of the gospel. When we go astray, when we're trapped in unbelief and doubt, you remain faithful. Thank you, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.